Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. I'm Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, in the spirit of our episodes on Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues and Ewoks, Battle for Endor, and maybe some others that are slipping my mind right now. Today, we're going to be covering a sequel without covering the first film uh, <laughs> that is the sequel to, which is something that I actually really like doing. But it's very important for this uh, sequence of movies, I think, because today's selection is called Teens in the Universe, or also known as Children in the Universe. Uh, and this is a 1974-75, I see both years cited as its release here. It is a, uh, a 1974-75 young adult sci-fi film made in the Soviet Union. And the reason I think it's important that we're looking at this second movie in a series instead of the first one is that this is the only one of the two movies that has gonzo robots end-to-end. Yes, yes. This one is going to be chock full of fun robots. Uh, I, I should note, at least the version I watched, uh, the fir- one of the first things to pop up on the screen is its rating, and its rating is ages 7 plus. Uh, <laughs> so I, I didn't test this on my 8-year-old. Uh, I think he would have probably found it interesting. Uh, I don't know. It probably moves a little slow for modern uh, youth audiences, but it, it is, for the most part, a, a young person's film. It's certainly viewable by children. So uh, this is one of the rare pictures where we don't have to offer any disclaimers or even the sort of inherent disclaimer of don't watch this film with your children. Yeah, I would say as a blanket rule, if you're watching Weird House Cinema movies, don't, you know, they're usually assumed to be not for kids. It's going to be a lot of genre weirdness. But this one, yeah, I'd let, you know, I think three-year-olds should watch this movie. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so it's called Teens in the Universe, and I wonder if a more accurate translation of the spirit of this title would be Teens in Space, because if it's really supposed to be in the universe, where else would they be? That's like from – what movie was it we did early on where somebody said like uh, the characters were trying to go seek help outside the universe? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think that gets switched around in translations. Uh, So yeah, I think Teens in Space probably – Seems good, but it, and it's also interesting to think about the, the the huge difference between a teenager's film in America and a teenager's film made in the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, so because if it was called Teens in Space uh, and it was a you know U.S. film from the 60s or much less the 70s, be a totally different film. Yes, uh, it, I think it would be far less concerned with like duty. Yes. <laughs> um, but so uh, the one thing I wanted to point out is that there there are several posters. I was finding online for this movie and for the film that comes before it. So this is a sequel to a, uh, I guess, 1974-ish Soviet film called Moscow Cassiopeia. And Moscow Cassiopeia has a really, really beautiful old, you know, hand-drawn poster that Mm -hmm. has a kid in a spacesuit with a helmet and then another kid looks like what they're like locked into the Phantom Zone from the Superman movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very trippy and spacey, but also it looks fun. It looks fun. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but then this movie, I, I found a really good poster for it online, but it's under an alternate title for the film, which was uh, Sesta Vesmiran, which means just journey through space. Uh, mm-hmm. But so this is an alternate uh, title for teens in the universe. And this one has like this 
creepy silhouette of a head with like eyeball tentacles for hair. And then it has goggles that are just showing some of the main characters in them. Yeah. Seems like a, an artistic treatment on some of the robots that we see in the, in the film. Okay. Elevator pitch for teens in the universe goes like this. Earth receives a distress beacon from a star in the constellation Cassiopeia, and it sends a spaceship full of Soviet 13-year-olds to investigate. They discover a ravaged planet full of very cool robots who turn their mission into a thought experiment about what's the good life. Yeah, it's, you know, in a sense, this is like your basic travel to another planet, have an adventure tale. Like, this is the exact kind of situation you would find in an episode of star trek we've come to a mysterious planet there was a a, maybe there was a distress beacon what's going on here what went wrong here what can we do to fix it and then what do we learn about ourselves in the process yeah but um you know i would say it's is we we can talk about the philosophical implications of this movie later on they're they're uh, they're questions that have been dealt with in other uh, interesting books and movies, you know, fiction of various kinds. We we can get into that in the, I guess the uh, the deep thought section. But uh, but I will say this is unusually thoughtful for a for a children's movie. Yeah, certainly when you if you go into it expecting like the Western idea of a kids' film, uh, yeah, you know, it's different. But this is something I'd like to look at in in future episodes of Weird House as well as we look at films that are that are children's films, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, I think there'll be a few others that come up and sometimes some very deep stuff is discussed in these films. And I think appropriately so. Okay. Let's hit some of that trailer audio. I don't even know if this is an original trailer. This might be some kind of recut recent thing, but at least we, uh, uh, oh, and also there's, as far as I'm aware, there is no dubbed version. So you're not going to hear any dialogue in English or anything, but we should at least get some of that good ominous piano theme. Yeah. Вот она, альфа-кассиопия. Внимание, входим в сферу планетарного притяжения. Паша, мы все время на связи. Счастливо. Поехали. Чего вы молчите? Вы же здесь первые люди на этой планете. Здесь еще не ступал нога человек. Люди? Мальчики. Вот она, цивилизация. Подождите, радуется. All right, there you have it. Teens in space, teens in the universe. I, I like the music in this movie. Uh, there, there are several different kinds. There's one section that has a really good, uh, good uh, horn section going nuts when a character is being sort of hypnotized and losing his mind. Yeah, a lot of the time it felt like there was either no music or the music. Maybe I just wasn't noticing it because the visuals were so stimulating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this movie is all about stimulation and the dangers of of uh, stimulation and entertainment. Yes. Uh, so so let's see. Uh, where should we start when talking about the, the the basic background of the film, the the connections? Well, you know, I guess first of all, we should point out this being a, a Soviet film, uh, the the connections aren't going to be as robust as some of the other films that we've discussed. But but there's still some very interesting stuff here. The big one, of course, is that this is a Gorky Film Studio motion picture. This was a Moscow f- film studio that produced roughly a thousand films by the fall of the Soviet Union, including but not limited to 1964's Jack Frost, which we've discussed on the show before. Morosko. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, 
the, they, they produced a lot of just high quality, very interesting looking films. Uh, I recommend just l- looking through the the archives to see some of the stuff that they, they looked at, because a lot of it's stuff that Western audiences have little or no exposure to. Um, for instance, there's a film called The Witch's Cave that looks very fascinating. Uh, as the name implies, it is an interstellar space movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that. But I, I don't know. It does seem like they, you know, it wasn't just fantasy and sci-fi films, but you do see that interesting parallel. I guess there's always an interesting parallel between a culture's fantasy and their sci-fi because the predominant fantasy in Russian cinema seems to have long been and still is, you know, treatments of these, these traditional Russian um, folklore tales, you know, Baba mm-hmm. Yaga and these uh, heroes, the stuff that we've discussed and stuff to blow your mind before. And then the sci-fi stuff, uh, you know, has a lot, a lot of it seems to have, you know, a very intellectual bent, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very – well, I mean, I think there's a deep connection. When I've seen Soviet sci-fi movies, they have more of kind of the, the Stanislaw Lim kind of approach, mm-hmm. uh, thoughtful – uh, kind of slow moving, but asking a lot of potent questions about human nature. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so something to keep in mind uh, anytime we're looking at, at Soviet films. Uh, Gorky Film Studio, by the way, continued into post-Soviet era as well, and uh, I believe is still quite active. You can go to their website, gorkyfilm.ru, and you can check it out. Like they have an active Instagram account. So, uh, yeah, Gorky seems to be very much uh, uh, in business today. In the credits for this movie, the full title it gives is uh, th- this is from the Maxim Gorky Central Movie Studios for Children's and Youth Films, which sounds very bureaucratically wholesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the people. Some of these names we're just going to roll through because I, I don't think they're going to really resonate that much with, with a lot of our listeners and or we couldn't find connections that were meaningful to us. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not very accomplished uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, my apologies for butchering any um, Russian pronunciations. Oh, here. God, we're going to get so many Russian names. Ter- we're doing our best. We're very sorry. But we'll yeah, we'll we'll <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll give you what we have. All right, so this one was directed by Richard Viktorov. It was written by Isaiah Kuznetsov and Avenir Zak. And -hmm. it seems to have been filmed uh, predominantly in Crimea. Yeah, it actually looked very – like the outdoor scenes – very much look like Black Sea region, the kind of that – the Black Sea basin. They've got that kind of landscape. Yeah. Uh, it stars, I guess, pr- predominantly the stars are the teens, the, the titular teens in in the universe. Uh, I was looking at some of these. M- many of them didn't seem to act beyond these two films, at least according to IMDb, at least in a way that's tracked on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but they're quite good. I feel like the, the teens come off as, I mean, they, they don't come off as robots, you know. Uh-huh. We have actual robots in the film. But, you know, like they, they seem to be decent actors so that I, as far as I can pick up off there, pick up on their their. They're serious when they need to be serious, which is a lot of the time. But they also have these moments of, of humor, which feels appropriate. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say about this movie is that I think one of the things about it that translates the least is the attempted comedy. Like comedy is one of the hardest things, I think, mm-hmm. to, to take cross cultural boundaries. And uh, while I think a lot of like the drama and stuff works in the movie, the movie is very funny, but most of the funniest stuff about it, I think is the unintentional stuff, you know, to, to an yeah. audience like us that I'm sure the intentional comedy would probably be funnier to actual Russian speaking audiences. Yeah. Now this does bring up an interesting question. You know, we, 
the title of these these episodes is Weird House Cinema, and often the question is, what's weird about this? Mm-hmm. And uh, I always want to ask myself the question, is this legitimately weird? Would this be weird for the audience that was intended to consume it? Or am I just finding it weird because I am watching it as a as a member of the outside culture? I feel like there's plenty of legitimately weird stuff in this. Oh, yeah, it's both. Yeah. So part of the weirdness is in us. Part of us. Part of it is just like the 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 gap in us not getting, you know, cultural cues that would be available to the original audience. But part of it is also just I think like the robots and the sets and all this stuff. That's Mm -hmm. objectively weird. Yeah. That's weird in every language. (laughs) Yeah. All right. A few of the other actors worth noting here. First of all, a big one, apparently, is uh, Inokinti Smoktonovsky, uh, who lived 1925 through 1994. And his nickname was apparently the king of Soviet actors. Um, I will probably just refer to him as the king of Soviet actors <laughs> henceforth. Uh, but You don't uh, want to just keep saying Inokinti Smoktonovsky? <laughs> uh, no, we're going to go with the king of Soviet actors, the king. Uh, and He's great in this. He plays a character that we'll get into a little bit more, but he is the IOO, the Extraordinary Service Executive. But this, yeah, he was apparently a huge deal in Soviet cinema. He he played Hamlet in the 1964 Soviet version and just has a, a whole list of, of credits on IMDb, the king of Soviet actors. Uh, I saw at least one of his credits. He plays Vladimir Lenin. Okay, so there you go. That's like, well, I guess that's like playing, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or something in American cinema. Yeah. <laughs> now, there was one other actor, certainly not a major actor in this film, that uh, that seemed to have some interesting connections for Western audiences. And that's this guy, Alexander Linkov, who lived 43 through 2014. And he plays one of the robots that we'll encounter, one of the uh, executor robots, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the more comic looking robots. Uh, but he was a, a longtime Russian actor who at least has a small connection to Western films in that he was in a 2007 film called Moscow Chill opposite Norman Reedus. Uh, so that one is apparently an American computer hacker in Russia thriller. Oh, boy. Yeah. Gotta love that. Wait, is Norman Reedus one of the uh, the, the boondock boys? He is, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about him. I've thought about this before. It's Maybe this is an illusion for me just based on things that I'm exposed to. But it seems like he's an American actor who has long had a lot of um, – uh, 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 seems to have had done a fair amount of work f- – for um, for foreign uh, directors mm-hmm. and in foreign films, like there's something about him that perhaps encapsulates America in a way that speaks well not only to Americans because he's popular here as well, but perhaps mm-hmm. captures something about America as perceived by uh, by other countries. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the the kind of actor who uh, specializes in their own national cinema versus uh, represents that national character in external cinema. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. Like maybe he has this like he's he Norman Reedus often plays cool characters for sure, mm-hmm. but he has this kind of feral quality to him as well, you right. know? Um Wait, is he a hacker in this uh in this Russian computer hacker movie? Like does he put yes. on the ski mask and sit at the keyboard and rattle uh, rattle well, rattle? I don't know. I don't know how cool it gets, uh but <laughs> but he's definitely a hacker in it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Linkov was in that. Uh, he was also in a film called The Barber of Siberia from 98 alongside Julia Ormond, Richard Harris, and Robert Hardy. I don't think it was a meaty role, but here he is in a film with, you know, some strong Western film connections. Okay. He was also in a film called Kinga Masterov, 
two, from 2009, a Russian fantasy movie featuring Baba Yaga and produced by the Walt Disney Company, CIS, the Russian subsidiary of Walt Disney. What? <laughs> I was not familiar with this at all, but Walt Disney uh, Company, CIS, has put out like a string of like big budget uh, Russian fantasy films. Wow, that went completely under my radar. I had no idea. Uh, Linkov was also a film stage and voice actor in animated films, but also in Russian dubs of foreign films, such mm. as Harry Potter. And uh, I, I was yeah, reading that he, he did the voice of Mundungus Fletcher in The Deathly Hallows Part 1, which is interesting because I'm not sure where one goes to really track this stuff. I don't think that's on IMDb, you know. Mm. But yeah. it, it it makes me wonder. Uh, oftentimes, it's interesting because, for instance, you'll have an interna- international actor who will translate their do their own translation, their own dubbing, uh, rather in um, in international versions of a film or a TV show. But uh, yeah, I, I I wonder if there's an internet database for that information. Interesting. So anyway, Lev Durov certainly not the biggest name in this film, but he plays one of the interesting characters, uh, and he is a, a name that I was able to connect to some other stuff. All right, well, are you ready to get into the full plot breakdown? Let's do it. Okay, so we got some opening credits at the beginning with music and the uh, uh, standard sort of interstellar breeze background with text in the Cyrillic script. Uh, And again, I mentioned this earlier, but I like the music. There's this great repeating piano theme that kind of sounds like Troubles Afoot. It goes like, Mm -hmm. do-do-do-do-do-do. And I was looking for anything interesting to come through in the credits. I did catch one thing, actually. So a lot of it was just, yeah, names of actors and and, uh, people from Soviet cinema that I I don't really know much about and couldn't find connections to anything I know much about. Uh, But there was one credit that was for consulting Soviet astronaut uh, Georgi Beragovoy. And I was like, huh, I've never heard of that. Is this guy real? So I looked him up, and yep, he was a real Soviet cosmonaut. Uh, He was a guy who flew ground attack missions for the Soviet Air Forces in World War II. And then after the war, he became a test pilot. And he uh, and then with the development of the Soviet space program, he became a cosmonaut in the 1960s. And uh, uh, Berikovoy here actually flew the Soyuz 3 mission in 1968, which that went up and it orbited the Earth several times. It was uh, intended to perform some orbital docking maneuvers, but I think they were unsuccessful for some reason. But he was hailed as a hero upon his return from, from space, and he would later go into politics in some form after his retirement from the space program. But I was just reading some interesting anecdotes from his life. Uh, Apparently, he was injured during an assassination attempt on Leonid Brezhnev in 1969. Hmm. Uh, I think he just happened to be standing nearby. I think maybe some uh, group of cosmonauts were being honored or something. And then there was this this failed attempt at assassination, and he was injured by, like, shattered glass or something. But then one last thing about this guy – There is this bizarre unsighted paragraph from Wikipedia that could be completely untrue, totally unsighted, (laughs) but I have to read it for just like oral legend uh, qualities, even if uh, there's nothing to it. So it goes like this. It says, quote, in October 1969, Konstantin Feok. Tistov and Georgi Berogovoy uh, traveled as guests of NASA throughout the United States, visiting any city they chose and the Disneyland Amusement Park in California. They were joined on the trip by U.S. astronauts as hosts to include Eugene Cernan, uh, Neil Armstrong, and others. 
Kirk Douglas and others hosted receptions for them in Hollywood. They were protected by special agents of the U.S. State Department on request of NASA. Almost every place they went, when accompanied by Eugene Cernan, if a band was present, the song Fly Me to the Moon was played, which, oh, I, I hate that song. Um uh, and then it says, uh, when they visited D- Disney Park, they enjoyed the ride Trip to the Moon, then joked with U.S. astronauts uh, that they went to Disneyland and not the moon. It was a trip that all enjoyed and international friendships were made. So this paragraph has obviously been translated from something. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what, but uh, I found this really funny. <laughs> well, that is funny. I, I like a, a good tale of, uh, of astronaut uh, camaraderie. But it also makes me wonder if if this is true that he was like hooking up with uh, Kirk Douglas and and special people in Hollywood during a visit to the United States in 1969. I wonder if that had anything to do with him being a sort of advisor to Soviet science fiction movies in the 70s. Interesting. I don't know. You know, you get into you know you re- you read things about uh, in, in Soviet history about the idea of exposure to to other cultures and mm-hmm. how at times that is viewed as um, is dangerous, you know, like you, you've been exposed to this this uh, other way of, of looking at the world and therefore it needs to be um, removed from you. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if this would be a case where like, oh, well, they were exposed to the, the, the Hollywood machine. They met Kirk Douglas. Uh, get him to advise on this film. Yeah, he's got some he's got space cred and and film cred and he can yeah. smash them together in the particle collider of his brain and produce brilliant insights into how you should make a movie about going to the to planet robot i'm not really sure anything in the movie that i noticed seemed to be informed by real experience in space flight did you really catch anything there there was one little tidbit actually and that was um i don't know if it was in your translation because i should note you you watched this on youtube with Mm. with subtitles Mm -hmm. i watched it on amazon prime with subtitles and uh, you know, we didn't do give them side by side comparison, but our translation seemed to be just a little bit different. Oh yeah, uh, in okay. places. Well, that'll be fun going forward. Yeah, we, we can compare but notes. In in my version, there was at least a mention about there being um, a gun strapped to the seat of their lander or strapped mm. behind the seat, mm-hmm. and that made me think about like this was an actual, this was a, a, a real quality of space exploration uh, uh, back in the day is that you would have some sort of weapon in the um, in the vessel for when you landed uh, the idea right. being that you're going to come back down in the wilderness and then what if the wolves come for you then um, it was a very real concern and so uh, I, I couldn't help but wonder if that was a nod to uh, to space exploration realism oh yeah that is interesting uh, though of course I think in the movie when they go looking for their their gun in the lander shuttle it's just gone I think the robots huh. have stolen it or something okay but that maybe is that good, was maybe that was the cosmonauts uh, thing. He's like, this whole movie would not happen because they would grab the gun from behind the seats and kill the <laughs> right. robots. And they're like, well, it's a it's a kids film, um, so we're, the, we're gonna work that out. He's the uh, the continuity editor. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so one thing that we've got to establish, I guess, going into this movie is that it is a sequel, and there is some information that we will get at the beginning of this movie, but just uh, for basic background, setting it up, what happens in the previous film, Moscow Cassiopeia, I did not watch Moscow Cassiopeia, but I did read some summaries. Okay. The best summary was a one-sentence line from IMDb uh, that goes like this, quote, 
Several children go to a lifelong space mission to Cassiopeia because they don't want to go to school. <laughs> well, that that's, that sounds probably accurate. Uh, these kids seem really sharp, so oh, they were yeah. probably bored with school. These these kids are like all geniuses, except maybe Lob. I'm not sure about Lob. Uh, what was Lob's specialty? They each have a specialty. His specialty was like was like hijinks and glue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll explain the characters more okay. as we go on. Uh, but so the longer version of the summary of the first movie, as I've pieced together from, from a few different uh, write-ups on the web, it's that scientists on Earth discover a radio signal emanating from a planet orbiting a star in the Cassiopeia constellation. And the star is known as Shedar or uh, Alpha Cassiopeia. And so a mission is formed to travel to the point of origin of the radio signal. But – the journey is going to take decades, so you can't. So, you, like, you can't send an adult crew because if you send crew a crew in their thirties or forties, they'll be old and infirm or even dead by the time they reach the source. So, Earth decides they have to send a crew selected from the brave youth of our planet, and the crew ends up being composed of what are called pioneers. I think this is supposed to be the Soviet equivalent of the scouts, like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but co-ed. Okay. But then there is some kind of malfunction. There is a stowaway on the mission who I believe is Lob, the uh, the yellow-haired guy, the, the you know the the cornhead, and the spaceship that they're traveling on ends up exceeding the speed of light. I'm not sure how that works because that's not physically possible, but that's what they say. And so what happens is they actually arrive at their destination far ahead of schedule. And oops, we didn't have time to grow up before we got here. So now they are not adults grown in space, but they are their still teenage selves arrived at their destination. So I, I love this setup because I think it really does seem to capture something nice about how we think about our children. You mm -hmm. know, uh, in this film, we're, we're literally taking uh, the youth and sending them through time and space to a different uh, place mm -hmm. uh, in, in order for them to act on behalf of humanity. But of course, uh, the, the, the normal situation is we are inherently sending our, our children into the future to be the future of humanity and preparing them as best we can, etc. And in reality, we often find that they, they are arriving ahead of schedule. You know, yeah, they're having yeah. to deal with the adult world uh, far ahead of what we, we kind of loosely expected. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that every parent in every generation discovers that their child is encountering too much of the world too fast, and it's scary. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we're about to get exactly the opposite uh, in a scene at the very beginning of this movie. So the first human action we get in Teens in the Universe is that we open on a Russian family popping champagne uh, over a cake studded with many, many candles. They're having a birthday party, and uh, it's in a very dimly lit house, I will say. I'm not sure why they don't like have some, more, some lights on, but they're in this dim house, uh, and they explain they're celebrating their son Pavel's 40th birthday. But Pavel is not here. Where is he? Well, we zoom in on a framed photo on the wall that explains Pavel is the pilot of the starship Zarya, and they give a they give an explanation later what the acronym Zarya stands for. It stands for Starship Annihilating Relativistic Nuclear. 
Not sure how all those things fit together, but that's what it is. So the Starship okay. Zarya is the this mission to uh, the Cassi- to Alpha Cassiopeia, which left Earth 27 years ago when Pavel was 13, and the parents are are celebrating his 40th birthday today because he should be 40. And it shows all kinds of things in the house that are sort of set aside and unused, uh, labeled with cardstock that say things like Pavel's favorite chair, Pavel's school books, and then my favorite. Pavel's hobby nail collection. And I had to rewind this a couple of times to figure out if I was missing something, but that's what the the card says. And it's just a box full of long nails, like nails you would use in construction. And this made me wonder, uh, Russian listeners, is this a cultural thing? Was it common in the seventies for adolescents to collect large nails? I've never heard of this. The the uh, the translation I had uh, there's a an adult who says these are the nails he liked to hammer, <laughs> um, and I, and I will say uh, I my didn't experience get that. that's good. <laughs> my experience as a father is that kids are very interested in hammering nails and want to do it. Sure. Um, so I mean that much is true. I don't know about the rest. I, I mean I also I loved hammering nails as a child, but I don't, I've never heard of collecting nails. Yeah, or to be, you know, proudly displayed as one of your top hobbies. Because in this very scene where they're talking about it, we see like a peek into what is presumed to be his his childhood room behind him. And it's not like, uh, I mean, this is not like the, you know, the opening stages of Willy Wonka where everybody's like, uh, you know, they have that that really fake feeling version of of poverty, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where everybody's sleeping in one bed and all. Uh, Like, it looks like a nice room and there are toys in there. It, we, we don't get the sense that they had an abnormal childhood, you know, or that they had a childhood where the only toy available was a box of nails. <laughs> that would be good, though. Uh, Father Christmas brings you a box of nails. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something sim- symbolic, too, about this. You know, mm-hmm. we're getting into, like, you know, the hammer and the sickle and the idea of building things. I don't know. Well, anyway, so we see all of Pavel's things preserved like this. But then suddenly... The folks at the party realize that someone is sitting in Pavel's favorite chair, which no one is allowed to sit in. Uh, The favorite chair has been soiled with a non-Pavel butt, and there is immediate confusion. And so this is going to be... But not outrage. Not outrage. No, no, no. No, No, they're just kind of like, oh, that's curious, uh, because (laughs) there is suddenly this kind of mousy, unimposing man who has a sly smile, and he looks like a bureaucrat of some kind. He's wearing a very 70s suit. And he's just this this meek, polite little man who's like, pardon me. I have something to clarify for you about this saga. And then he snaps his fingers and turns on the lights by magic. And this is Inakenti, I believe. Uh, the Yeah, this is the king. This is the king. Uh, and he explains that in this movie, he is the – in my – edition it was the eoe the executorial official of elucidation i think yours had a different translation uh yeah well i i think i the the translation i pulled was from imdb so i can't remember what he called himself in the version i watched so yeah he's basically like hello i am the magic bureaucrat here who is in charge of explaining what's going on in the plot and a while apparently teleporting around the room, like he just appears in Pavel's chair and then suddenly he is sitting between two other party guests. Yeah, he is overtly magical. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he's he's not obeying the rules of the rest of the film and to a certain degree seems to be aware that it is a film. And I, don't, I can't remember if he actually breaks the fourth wall at any point, but there is a sense that he's winking at us. Yes. The viewer. Um, and. 
all the characters that encounter him, save the teens, I think, uh, later on in the film, regard him with confusion. So I, it felt appropriate that I didn't really understand him either. Uh, he's kind of this Soviet Willy Wonka. Yes. You know, he, yeah. he seems Willy to Wonka. have godlike powers, but he's, he clearly can't be God. Uh, but, you know, maybe I, so I was, I was thinking, well, maybe he's a highly advanced technological civilization's representative in the story. I, I don't know. Uh, the best I can think of is just Soviet Willy Wonka. Yeah. He just a, a couple of times in the film, he just appears to do exposition and then do magic things mm-hmm. and characters. Yeah, it's weird. They they were they act confused by his presence like they don't understand him, but not confused enough. They're just like just mildly confused. They trust him. Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, so he says he's here to clarify something about this saga. So he asks Pavel's mother how many candles are on the cake. And she explains, well, 40, right? He was 13 when he left Earth. Now 27 years have gone by, so he'll be turning 40. But then uh, the uh, the magic bureaucrat asks her to count the candles again. So she does. And there are only 14 this time. And he explains this is due to Einstein's paradox. And here we get a very loose explanation of the effects of relativistic time dilation, which, of course, is real. Uh, this is something mm-hmm. that a lot of the best sci-fi movies that try to stick to the hard science have actually played with because it's it's one of the most magical seeming things about real reality. Uh, wonderful redundancy, uh, Joe, real reality. Uh, But it is true that time is not the same for all observers everywhere in the universe. It passes differently at relatively different rates, depending on things like how close you are to a large center of mass or how fast you're traveling relative to an observer. So it's true that if you were to get in a spaceship and travel at close to the speed of light, uh, though time would seem to pass normally for you, To an outside observer, you could appear to be living in a sort of slow motion, so the people left behind on Earth would age faster in relation. And the magic bureaucrat explains this to the party guests. The point is that Pavel is not actually 40, he's only 14. And I think the immediate implication is, oh no, these teens are not mature enough to be exploring other planets. And, uh, and I love thinking about like imagining if the same premise of movie were done today by generationally terrified adults in the United States, Oh yeah, uh, like, so, you know, the supposed horror that would be represented by the idea of zoomers TikToking as they crash land into the alien capital. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you could, you could tweak this premise in various directions and get an interesting um, idea for a film, you know, kids in space, teens in space, 20 somethings in space, mm-hmm. boomers in space. Yeah. There's so much you could do. Boomers in um, space. <laughs> what if it had gone the other way? So they got there, yeah, and they were like cranky people in their 70s. Yeah, that would that would be good. Um, also, I should say that with the teens, we do get the impression, uh, I don't know if this was in your version as well, that they're, they're augmented in such a way that they can, say, read Tolstoy with their minds. Like one character says to the other, well, you know what it says in Tolstoy on page such and such line, such and such, and yeah. they're like, beep, oh, yeah. Uh, so not all of them can do that. I think that's just that one character who can quote okay. books back from memory because he's – I think the, the implication is that he happens to have a photographic memory for everything he's ever read or consumed. Oh, OK. So maybe not technologically augmented, but just getting back to the idea that these kids are all savants or yes. you know, just geniuses ahead of their time. They're the very best of our youth. Well, yeah, because some of these these kids are supposed to be like 13, 14, but they have expertise. They are like scientists. Mm. Like one of the 
one of the boys is a spaceship pilot. One of the girls is an exobiologist. These are people who have completed postgraduate degrees, but they're 13. Right. But we're not sure what uh, – what's his name? Um, Lobo? Lob, Lob, Lobanov, who goes by Lob. Lobanov. Yeah. yeah he, space, not, space Ron Weasley, I kept thinking of him. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure what his expertise is, if he has any. I don't know. We, we'll explain more about him as we go on. So, But it, anyways, we, we finally cut to our young heroes in the spaceship, and it's nearing its destination. Uh, and by the way, this movie has the kind of outer space design that was more common in older movies that I really like, where you get – I mean, again, it's not something that looks necessarily realistic, but – you get these colorful ribbons of nebulae and, and green yeah. stars and stuff. It's kind of the, the theremin picture of outer space. Yeah, it's like a fairy light kind of cosmos, which I see making a return in some places in some sci-fi cinema, you know? Where really? Yeah, like um, I, I've seen it like in some Star Wars stuff that's hmm. come out. Oh, uh, that makes up, sense, up yeah. Where they're kind of getting back to the idea of like, what can we do that makes it more exciting? You know, because we've had just the, the the dark star field for so long cinematically that, you know, especially in the more fantastic versions of science fiction, people were saying, well, what can we do to, to, to you know, flip the script on this? Yeah, I, I am OK with a stylized design for outer space. It I, That is fine with me. I don't care if that's not necessarily what it would realistically look like from that capsule window. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we meet the young cosmonauts, and they've got cool white jumpsuits. Now, I'm, I'm divided on this because <laughs> on one hand, I've come to the conclusion – I think you've said this before as well. I mean we, I believe we share the opinion that basically any movie can improve with the addition of jumpsuits. Jumpsuits yes. just make everything cooler. Absolutely. But on the other hand, it creates some problems in this movie because for most of the movie, I had trouble telling – like at least three of the boys apart from each other because they're all dressed the same. They kind of look the same. Uh, the girls less so because they had like different hairstyles and like glasses or no glasses. Like they were more easily distinguishable. Yeah. Three of the boys are just like they've got brown hair. They don't look super different from each other and they're dressed exactly the same. Yeah, for me, it was uh, the gal with space glasses. There was space Ron Weasley and then there was just the rest. Yeah. So maybe what these movies should do is, yes, go jumpsuits, but have different color jumpsuits. So everybody's got their own color, and then it's easy to remember, okay, this is the red guy. Yeah. Oh, and interestingly, that would even fit with some of the, the color coding technology themes in the movie. Uh, but anyway, so three boys in the spaceship, when we first meet them, are discussing how to celebrate Pavel's birthday, uh, just like his parents were doing back home. And they're debating what kind of holodeck program they should load. Maybe some nice, pretty outdoor nature scenes where they can go sunbathing or maybe a big ceremonial banquet hall. And no, they end up landing on the place every 14-year-old would most love to celebrate their birthday inside their house with their parents. Well, but these are these are not normal um, teens. These are teens that are no longer on Earth. That's so true. It's, so it's understandable that they're overcome with homesickness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this actually becomes the uh, point of this whole sequence. But I love how they're talking about how to put together this holodeck image. And they're like, don't forget the samovar and his white cat. <laughs> and they decide they're going to play some recorded like tape reels of voices from his childhood home. I don't know why they have those, but Pavel goes into the holodeck here and he wanders through his childhood home, which has gymnasts rings hanging from the ceiling. I thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess maybe he's a gymnast, but he doesn't really show off any gymnastic skills in the movie. 
uh, and the recorded voices play. It's this tape playing back his parents talking. But then – so at first he's just kind of wandering around in this lonely reverie. But then it gets a little too real and Pavel starts being like, Mama, Papa. And the other kids stop the tape of his parents talking because clearly it has it has stabbed him in the heart. He is wounded. Yeah, the, the teens are so empathetic in this scene. And, yeah. and I really loved it because I feel like I've been watching some uh, – some modern like teen drama mm-hmm. uh, content on like Netflix and stuff. And uh, it, it, it kind of grates on the soul after a while. So it was nice to see in this case, teens coming together and caring about each other. Yeah. There's so in the, so much modern, like teen stuff. They're so mean to each other. And in mm-hmm. this, the, these characters are just so earnest. They are yeah. deeply, deeply earnest and, and to borderline sentimental about each other. Yeah, so even though I couldn't tell several of them apart from each other, I I, I cared about all of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so so the teens bust in after they've stopped the voice playback, and they all do this thing. This is another question I have about whether this is a real Russian thing or if it's just original to the movie. Where you would expect them in an American movie to sing the happy birthday song, they run in and they do this shouted chant that translates to "We wish you a happy birthday." But it's it sounds kind of aggressive. It sounds like a war cry. Do you remember this? Uh, I don't remember this oh, all okay. that much. <laughs> I watched it this morning, uh, but I don't remember this thing. I mainly remember okay. the song that comes after it. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it goes by very fast. Uh, but the whole thing, like we said, just makes Pavel very sad. He's homesick. He misses his family. And then one of the pioneers, she, you know, they all notice how sad Pavel is. And then one of the pioneers, I think this is the exobiologist, Varya, she gets this kind of frightening, cold resolve in her eyes. And she says, we should swear an oath never to tease each other like this again, reminding our friends of their homes so it wouldn't hurt so much and weaken our resolve. And so (laughs) she's very – when we first meet Varya, she's very all business, no feelings or horsing around. Uh, and and I think this comes through when just a few minutes later we see Varya refusing an offer of candy from one of the other girls. She's just like, no, no candy for Varya. But anyway, the other teens, they take what she says to heart and they interpret this as an oath never to reminisce about Earth. And they just go around in a circle, everybody swearing that they will never reminisce about Earth. But then one of them is like, well, we can't. We, we can't swear this. We can't help but reminisce. And he says, home family, those are the most valuable things we have. So then the commander of the mission, uh, who's, who goes by Vic, Vic orders everyone to feel feelings and to reminisce. And, the, and they, they celebrate this reminiscence uh, and they celebrate their innocence by busting out a guitar and doing a musical number, which I did not see coming. <laughs> but I thought what's interesting is when they, they get out the guitar and they all sing together, but it, they don't sing a song that sounds fun or like a celebration. They sing this hideously somber song called night has passed. Now I tried to look this up and find out if there's, if if it exists outside the movie, I don't know if it's original to the film or if it's some kind of folk song that I just couldn't dig up, but I think it's original to the movie because the lyrics seem to refer to space flight as saying things like, will the stars sincerely welcome us? And there's one part where they compare uh, traveling through the stars to sailing through an ocean full of seaweed. Hmm. But but the tune is very somber. It kind of reminds me of uh, the the tune of Anna Tevka from Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly does have the somber feel to it. You know, and it's about, you know, they're dealing with nostalgia. They're dealing with... Uh 
uh, you know, with homesickness. So it, mm-hmm. it feels appropriate. I think it drives home, though, that the teens are very serious about their mission, right? You know, yeah. they're not up there just to play. Right, right. And, they, and they're, they're far more capable uh, of, of, of accomplishing the task than one might assume, uh, just based on the idea of teens in space. Yes. Um, so then uh, we get a scene where we're back on Earth and there's a press conference where I guess some representatives of the space agency are talking about uh, how the scientists have decoded the original message coming from Alpha Cassiopeia. And it means that the planet is inhabited by intelligent beings and that their world suffered a catastrophe that threatened entire civilization. Occasionally, the uh, the subtitles in my version were kind of, I think, unintentionally funny because there was an accidental sort of Boris and Natasha grammar where, like, articles are left out of sentences. So it would just hmm. say threatening entire civilization. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I got that in, in mind. But there was something about it, about civilization being threatened in a way that made me wonder, like, which civilization? Our civilization? Uh-huh. Or was it there? Are we talking about uh, the civilization of, a, of an alien planet? I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I think it was their planet at least, but it could represent a threat to ours maybe if – I don't mm-hmm. know. That, that's the, the unanswered part. But I liked the press corps at this junket. I mean I think it's supposed to represent a gaggle of – international press people. There's like one guy with a big white beard smoking a pipe. But then we also meet this smooth guy named, he's identified as Biff Wayund for a publication called Youth Journal. And he's (laughs) wearing a yellow turtleneck and and a dark leather jacket with some kind of orange pin on it. He just looks very smooth, very cool. He looks like the kind of guy who, like, if he was a journalist today, like half of his social media timeline would just be filled up with photos of his extreme sports hobby. You know, he does like (laughs) volcano snowboarding or something. I just remember thinking, wow, that sounds like a good beat. You know, that sounds like a a good publication to work for. Yeah, we report on youth. (laughs) Yeah. But then we go back to the the planet and uh, the pioneers are hanging out. And then there was a part that really made me laugh where suddenly they're like, look, there's the planet. And it's just right outside the window. Yeah, well, they, they look at the star out one window and then they look at the planet out the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the, the ship is, uh, we haven't really mentioned the interior that much, but the inside of the ship the, the, looks amazing. Like all the sets in this this film are really well put together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have these nice windows to look out at the, the cosmos. But then you have, I think there's like one room in particular that has this kind of like padded leather uh, look to it. Yeah. Which looks just very comfy. Like very, this is a cool spaceship. A movie doesn't have to be super high budget to have a lot of great texture in it. I mean, you can just do that with, like, cool, colorful sets and costumes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, this gives way to a debate about who's going to be sent down in the landing party. Because I think there are, like, seven or eight of the teens total, and only three of them can go down to the planet in the shuttle. And so they argue – again, I had a hard time telling different boys in the crew apart from each other at first, uh, except for – the one named Lob, who is the one who has like corn yellow hair, like super mm-hmm. yellow, like unnatural looking blonde hair, uh, who kind of reminded me of the the blonde hair of uh, Ivan Sarovich in, in Morosco. Yeah, yeah. But different crew members make their cases. Uh, one of the girls, I think this is Varya, is like, I have to be in the landing party because I'm an exobiologist and you need me to explain what life forms we come in contact with. Seems reasonable. Uh, One of the boys, I think this was Lob, says, 
you have to send me down because I'm the only one who's an expert in extraterrestrial civilizations. (laughs) What is that? What does that expertise entail? Uh, I mean, it would have to be an expertise in uh, human civilizations, right? And then just um, some preparation to... uh, to use that knowledge to figure out what you're looking at on another world, I guess. I get the feeling that Lob is BSing, that Lob <laughs> maybe does not have much of an expertise, actually. Though, on the other hand, he claim, he says also uh, he should be sent down because he invented something called the Universal Glue that I think must be a reference to something from the previous film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the commander, Vic, he has to make up his mind. And so we see the other crew members kind of hanging out and talking about their feelings. There's some interpersonal gossip. They talk about their crushes. Um, uh, the exobiologist, Varia, talks about how she prefers when people do not reveal what's inside of them. And then there's also some talk about uh, one one of the other girls on the crew. I think she's a medical doctor. Uh, she's the one with, quote, loud glasses. I don't know how that was translated in your version. Uh, I, I didn't notice that, but it's the perfect way to describe these glasses. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're big. They're, they're pronounced. They, but they're, I think they're cool. Like if I saw somebody wearing these glasses, I would be like, those are some cool, cool glasses. I like that. They're, they're a statement. They're, they, the frames are so thick. They look like they weigh five pounds. Like she yeah. it must be a struggle to keep her head pointed up. Uh, But so a landing party is selected and the three of them get into the shuttle and go down into the planet's atmosphere. So it is Pavel, Lob, and Varia. And there's some chatter that is repeated throughout the movie that did not make any sense to me whatsoever. But as soon as they're coming down through the fog, Lob starts declaring uh, that they see these spires. And Lob says, those structures indicate the inhabitants are wingless, eight-legged dragonflies. Yeah, I, it was the same with my version. He would kept going on about dragonflies, and I'm not sure what—maybe some of the humor's lost, but yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. But I will say this whole landing scene, uh, it really struck all the notes for the video game No Man's Sky for me. Ooh. because. Because they come in and it's instantly this beautiful landscape. Mm-hmm. As you get closer, uh, you begin to make out some like buildings or some sort of structures in the distance. And there are also like strange things moving around, like ball-like creatures. Uh, and then also the, the, the spaceship comes in really hard yeah. and basically just wrecks itself crashing, which also is my experience with No Man's Sky. Right, yes. Hot landing, definitely. Yeah, all the time. And uh, yeah, and it's cool. That I look the, there are like these red trees and these weird white top-shaped structures up on pillars um, and uh, and it's also total Star Trek rule, like no need for helmets or contained atmosphere. They just mm-hmm. hop right out, faces to the atmosphere, and they notice a bunch of weird stuff. They notice there's a weird echo when they shout on this planet. Uh, and I really like – they see some aliens, but they're not humanoid aliens. They are these big white bubbles that bounce along in a herd. So imagine a herd of sheep but without heads or legs, just bouncy balls. Yeah, reminding me a bit of the alien in Dark Star, mm. uh, as well as uh, oh, what's that? What's the old uh, the prisoner the, or the yeah the prisoner? Yeah. yeah, also strong strong vibes of the prisoner. Yes, uh, and so uh, so they're exploring, and then Lob is like, "Hey, I have to go pee." <laughs> um, and so he, he wanders off by himself, but instead of peeing, or maybe in addition to peeing, he starts writing graffiti on the structures of this planet. He writes like lob was here on a pillar <laughs> and yep. there's some tonal issues again of the storytelling that are, I feel like maybe getting lost on me, 
But I think Lob is supposed to be kind of the Nick Bottom of this movie. You know, the comic windbag who ends up with ass ears. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, he's he's kind of the Weasley of the of the crew. Um, he's 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 there to he's there for some some comedic elements uh, to shine through. But then this moment is where the movie for me really kicks into high gear because suddenly we meet the bots. We meet these. I guess it's that the fact that he was riding on the pillar summons disco robots from out of another dimension. They just like walk out from behind the pillar. Uh, not like there would have been room for them to be standing there. There's the idea that like a, a rift in the, in time space has opened up and they just kind of come out of it. Yeah. And I love these bots. They, I, I, I could think of tons of different ways to describe them. They're sort of cybertronic funk pinheads, like pinhead, the Cenobite in that they have, uh, metallic spikes for hair, but they also have mm-hmm. these like white masks and gloves, uh, uh, kind of uh, almost military uniform, but shiny uh, acrylic texture uh, on, on their jackets. And they dance everywhere. When moving from here to there, they do not walk, but they do this bobbing rhythmic disco strut. Yeah, which is v- accentuated by the bell bottoms that they're wearing. Yes. Uh, they're, 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 again, black uh, jumpsuit type attire seems to have this uh, bell bottom type uh, pant uh, uh, addition to it. Yes, they are staying alive and they communicate through whistles and gestures, which are translated by a computer on, on Lob's suit. Uh, Lob and the robots bond over mathematics, like they attempt to write out some equations together. And then the robots just link arm in arm with Lob and they disco strut back to the other dimension with him. Yeah, they um, in, in my translation, at any rate, when they correct him, uh, they go, it could happen to anybody. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't remember if they were translating their whistles or what, but... Um, yeah, I love these robots. They have, for, they 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 feel very fun in a way that I think will be pivotal uh, here in a bit. But they have this real Cirque du Soleil feel to them. Like yes. if you've ever, anytime you're encountering something futuristic in Cirque du Soleil, like that's exactly the vibe these guys have. And yeah, they have that weird metal hair, sometimes complete with bald spots. Did you notice this? Yes, sometimes. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, we we learn later that these are. Uh, there are a few different terms for them, but in, in my translation, these are the executioner bots. Or, or executioner or executor? Oh, well, ex- I'm sorry, executor bots. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they are here to to, to execute um, a particular um, plan yeah. or uh, approach to life. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, more on them in a bit, but they are very mime-like in their movements. I, I really enjoyed them, but they're also a little bit menacing. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll totally make sense once you get the full readout of what happened to this planet, but they feel exactly like robots that will kill you with fun. Yeah. And in my version, so they were called the executors in your version. In mine, they were called the implementers. Okay. Uh, But so Varya and the other guy, I guess this Pavel, they're looking around for Lob after he's disappeared, and then uh, they're wandering off, and then uh, eventually they run into the robots as well and are invited to follow them back into wherever they took Lob. And they go, and they end up in what appears to be some kind of underground facility with white walls. Meanwhile, uh, back up at the ship, something interesting happens. The, the, the members of the Pioneer team who are left behind on the ship notice another spacecraft approaching them. Or maybe it's not a spacecraft. Actually, it seems like it is some kind of space station that is orbiting the planet. And so mm-hmm. they go look out the windows at this space station, 
and they see humans or what appear to be humans, apparently humanoid aliens who look just like Earth humans. Yeah, the the teens have to go up to what is, I think, described as something like an exhibition window or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems to exist as a means of displaying one's physical reality to another species without the necessity or interference, perhaps, of electronic communication. Yeah. Like as if to say, this is what I am. Uh, I am a living thing. Yeah. Look at my arms and legs. They, they do like the big, like full arm waving thing. Yeah. Uh, and then um, – so back to the landing party down in the planet, or I guess in this underground facility, the we cut to all three of the teens sitting in chairs just laughing hysterically. And there is a talking head with these – oh, man. So this is going to be a different type of the robot class. Uh, different. Uh, these are the uh, the controllers or the what we'll find out are called the meliorators in my version. Mm-hmm. But the way they look is they're dressed all in white, and then they have these – bizarre prisms for goggles. So imagine uh, convex or concave lenses over their eyes that cause uh, so much diffraction that it looks like they've got four or six eyes. Yeah, the, these costumes are really well done, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Like, there's also some wiry, um, like, robotic elements added to them that, that look really uh, look really good in, in, in the suit. So you get the sense of the robotic, but also of the, like, the alien and the almost angelic, you know, with yeah. these kind of multiple eyes. So it's a really great look. Yeah, so one of the goggle heads says to them, uh, to welcome you, we wanted to cheer you up. So I guess they just injected them with hysterical laughter. <laughs> and then the uh, the kids start negotiating with the prism eyes. They, they say, uh, the, the robots ask them, why did you come here? And they say, well, you called, you radioed for help. And the robots say, no, we did not. And the kids say, yes, you did. And then they say, the signal was not ours. Which is very intriguing. But anyway, this mm-hmm. eventually ends up with lots of robots with those goggle eyes coming around, like coming on this thing. I guess this is weird to describe, but it happens a lot. It's in a lot of the rest of the movie. So it's like a ball TV. Imagine yeah. a rotating white sphere on which is projected an image of one of these controller robots. And yeah, like a, a spherical Ikea uh, lamp. Yes. Like hanging lamp is, is what it is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and, and it like rotates and displays this image. And so different goggle heads keep coming on these these rotating ball TVs and asking the pioneers if they want happiness. And they're like, sure, who, you know, who doesn't want happiness? Except Varya. Varya doesn't seem very interested in happiness. Um, <laughs> but the other two want happiness. And then they just start saying, we will make you happy. We will make you happy. Which was actually very creepy. I thought this was yeah. like an effectively disturbing scene. Yeah. And then somehow, I don't remember what leads to this, but Lob ends up getting a remote control for reality. There are these objects called keys i guess that operate the the technology on this planet and they're sort of this long uh this long prism shaped pointy thing and he gets yeah like a multicolored prismic shard of some sort yeah 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 a techno shard Uh, and then back on the ship, the rest of the pioneers have met with the the humanoid aliens from the space station. So now they're hanging out together and they're on the holodeck in the ship. So they're sitting around in an Earth landscape, educating the aliens about fruit and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. They're like, here's what a pumpkin is. 
Uh, but the aliens here, here's where you get your big exposition dump. The aliens suddenly explain everything that went wrong with their planet, how how it got all jacked up. So what they say is 250 years ago, their civilization was thriving. Creativity brought them joy. They said uh, our greatest accomplishments include biomechanical robots, the implementors or the executors. And they say that these robots – freed the people of the planet from mechanical labor because the robots could do all the work. But then they say after that, they created a, a new class of robots, the meliorators or the controllers, which they say, quote, not only had the ability to govern the implementers, but also to improve their design. However, the controller robots eventually resolved to improve even us, the living. They reasoned our perfect state would be happiness Yet they thought happiness was being obstructed by tortures of creativity, desire for self-improvement, empathy, benevolence, conscience. Their solution was to purge us of these qualities. We didn't want such happiness. We resisted, but it was too late. All you see is no more. So their, their planet was destroyed by a conflict with these robots, the meliorators or the controllers. And the alien says that during this conflict, uh, the meliorators and controllers became very cunning and they created an insidious sonic weapon, quote, a mind altering sound affecting all who heard it, eroding their strength of will. Yeah. Which sounds very sci-fi yeah. and the payoff will, will, Will be a little bit disappointing. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, I actually really enjoyed the payoff, but in a in a kind of maybe unintentionally funny way. Yeah, I guess it gets into the whole conundrum we've talked about before. What does what does future music sound like? What does yes. alien music sound like? Yes, uh, and um, yeah. So they say the sonic weapon it broke the minds of even the strongest of them, and. Then the robots got what they wanted, which was that all of the people of the planet just obediently followed the robots, hypnotized by the sonic weapon. They followed them into chambers where they were converted into complacent, selfish beings of infinite, mindless happiness. So just happy to the fullest extent possible for the human brain. But of course, eclipsing all other desires, eclipsing desires to uh, to work, to care for friends and family and children, in which case they basically the people of this planet went extinct within a generation. They just rotted away in empty bliss. Yeah, they were tripped out on sensation like they were under sedation. Pretty much. <laughs> Uh, but but I love I love the the one little detail you mentioned there um, about how they said that they observed like the torture of creativity. Yeah, you know, and and I, I love that it's kind of like the robots were saying, why are you engaging in these creative projects when they they seem to make you so unhappy and they seem to stress you out so much? Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me of, of a, a quote from a, a Raymond Chandler uh, novel, The Big Sleep, uh, where uh, I forget the details of it, but uh, our, our detective character comments, uh, one would think a writer would would be happy here uh if a writer is ever happy anywhere um you know <laughs> so it's kind of like the robots are like yeah like you're why are you doing this creativity stuff you're, you're so unhappy let me just make you happy and we'll cut out all of this this unnecessary torment well yeah this is a really interesting thing and i think it raises the main philosophical question of the movie which i guess we can get into a little bit later in the in the deep thoughts section but it's the question of um uh, of a robot not being able to understand that there are things we do that might not be pleasurable while we're doing them, and yet they're still valuable to us. And the robot says, mm -hmm. like, oh, you're doing the work of 
I don't know, learning a new skill or caring for your children or something. That's not maximally fun. Let's like, let's yeah. make you have more fun. Yeah. And yeah, then the fun police show up, uh, which is pr- pretty much what the uh, executors are. Uh, now, then we get a diversion that's just a brief scene back on Earth with uh, the king of the king of what's his name? The king of Russian actors or uh, the, 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 the king, what, the Soviet king of cinema. Yeah, yeah. The, the king, uh, he intervenes at mission control again, just using literal magic, apparently, to create to turn a payphone in the mission control office into a magic uh, thing that will show the mission control people scenes on the spaceship where they can like look into a video feed inside a cigar box and see the pioneers. Mm-hmm. And then I, I don't think the scene has any effect on the rest of the plot whatsoever. But it's, he speeds things along. So yeah, I would love for Soviet science, Willy Wonka to show up in other films <laughs> that I'm watching, yeah. especially when they start feeling overlong uh-huh. Just to show up and do some exposition and snap his fingers and say, okay, let, let, let's, let's uh, get to the yeah, point. Let's move here. on. <laughs> Uh, so back on the planet, uh, I love that. So Pavel and Varya and Lob at this point, they are succumbing to the, you know, we will give you happiness that these robots are doing in this underground chamber. And this is expressed through the fact that they are drinking juice, the ultimate decadence. They're just drinking orange juice, papaya juice. At one point, it looks like beet juice, maybe. And uh, Vic, the commander, radios them from the spaceship. Uh, through, uh, th- oh, through the key that they have, the shard, the remote control mm-hmm. thing. And he tells them they're in grave danger. They have to leave. Uh, but then the goggle head comes on the TV and just tells them to chill, says there's no danger and he's going to make them happy. Yeah, just enjoy your unlimited juice. Right. And so they try to leave eventually. They get out of the, the chamber and they, they go up to the surface to go back to their shuttle. But Varia disagrees because she's like, I want to stay and study the planet. I've got work to do. And yeah, she's like, don't you want to know why this is happening? Why these robots look like humans, et cetera? Right, yeah. So she's dedicated to her mission, doesn't want to leave. And this delays them enough that the robots attack. The disco pinheads dance out and they form a chorus line around the shuttle, like literally like a chorus line. They're like in a line dancing. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene. And so, of course, the bots take the landing party prisoner again. And now there's no bones about it. The the pretty talk of like, uh, you know, you can leave anytime you want. We just want to make you happy. That's over there. You are our prisoners now and we will make you happy whether you like it or not. Yeah. And then they blow up the ship. Yeah, they blow up the ship. I, I laughed out loud when they blew up the ship because it was a ridiculously huge explosion. Yeah, it, it looked good. It was clearly not a, a model. Uh, it's as if they had uh, a tank fire on the prop or something. Yeah. Well, I think they, they do a quick cut where they you can see they move the prop out of the frame right as the explosion happens. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it still looks like quality munitions, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Pavel, Lob, and, and Varia are trying to figure out how to escape when they're trapped down in this uh, this underground lair. And Lob again goes on a weird rant about different kinds of dragonflies. I did not understand what this yeah, was supposed same. to mean. Maybe <laughs> this is again, maybe this is some kind of reference to the previous movie. Uh, but Lob decides it's hopeless, uh, says their bot captors are invincible. They will never defeat the bots. But then I loved this part. Varia comes up with a plan. She uh, she starts asking math questions to the bots. She's like, hey, what's uh, five times seven, you know, and, st- and then other types of equations. And of course, they can answer them. They're like, uh, they're like, we know everything. We can do math. And then she asks them this. I don't know what this means, but I think I know what it's supposed to represent. Maybe your translation was different. She, In my version, she says, 
A and B are sitting on a rose. A fell. B fainted. What remains? In mine, they're sitting in a tree. Okay. A fell and B vanished. So (laughs) take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, I don't understand this example in particular. Again, maybe something is lost in translation, but I think it's the old machine logic trap. I think what Mm -hmm. she's doing is this question is somehow supposed to represent a paradox and she jams their brains with this logic paradox and they turn red smoke comes out of their faces and they keel over and disintegrate like just leave empty clothes like obi-wan kenobi but they're still trapped in this underground lair like they can't find a way out so they're they're roaming around uh one thing i must point out is that the actors in this movie keep saying robot but they don't pronounce it like we do in english today they keep saying robot oh i like that it's the way the way zoidberg says it in futurama yes But here uh, we get to the part where a rescue mission is assembled. So two more of the pioneers, uh, uh, I don't remember their – I think one of them is Vic, the commander. The other one, I don't remember his name. Uh, But they get together with one of the aliens from the space station, uh, this totally hairless guy named Agapit. And Mm -hmm. the three of them go down to the surface on a rescue mission. And they manage to enter the underground lair where the original landing party is trapped – But Gogglehead comes on the ball TV and he's like, welcome. We're glad to have you. You will now be sent to the Chamber of Blissfulness, where in two of your hours, you will become completely happy, happy, happy. So this introduces this chamber, which uh, is going to play into the climax of the movie. Uh, But so they're they're running around trying to rescue each uh, rescue the other pioneers down there. Uh, They're navigating these foggy corridors. Uh, I I guess they end up meeting up with their friends. So all six of the people are together now uh, and they're trying to escape down these like halls filled with mist. But at some point, Agapit stops. Uh, Remember, he's the alien from the space station. He's never been down to the surface before. I think I think he was born on the space station. But he stops in the middle of a hall and he starts doing the Bonnaroo dance. You know, the the mm-hmm. music festival, uh, you know, uh, perhaps ecstasy is involved dance where the arms are over the head and the kind of twisting body. Well, I would think of it like cinematically, it probably has as much to do with sort of like a go-go dancing films. Okay. Uh, that's, that's what comes to mind for me. Sure. Uh, because, yeah, he's instantly overcome by this uh, this. What, what to us would be archaic uh, youth music, you know, yeah. like uh, like it's the it's the sound of the youth culture yeah. overcoming him and 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 drawing him into uh, into movement and dance. Uh, which at this point in the film, there's a really pervasive sense of this whole thing being about the dangers of youth culture. Though it's weird because the youth themselves in the movie are not really especially like they're very. On the ball. Yeah. Except well, maybe they're, Lob. They're, they've been prepared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there, yeah, the, the, there's this music that plays with like heavy bass and scramble horns, and Agapit dances off following this sonic weapon to his doom. This is the sonic weapon that they were talking about earlier. Um, and so the the teens are like, well, we can we can try to rescue Agapit later. We got to find a way out of here. Uh, so they're running around, but wherever the teens in the universe go, the gogglehead uh, comes on ball TV and uh, and starts trying to hypnotize them. You know, saying we will make you happy, happy. And then, oh, uh, I, I guess one of the other teens that came down was the girl with the thick glasses. You know, the loud mm. glasses, and I think she is a medical technician of some kind because she comes up with a cool 
hack against the ball TVs, which is that she gets out a roll of bandages from her medical bag and just like holds it up over the edge of the spinning spherical television until she turns it into a mummy and the image on it is hidden. Yeah, it's it's kind of neat to watch, but it's it's kind of unclear why this really works. <laughs> Somehow it does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then we get several other scenes that I don't know if we can describe in too much detail, but they're just so good. There's a head exchanging scene where robots argue about whether they have each other's heads or not. And they, yeah. they're trying to. The comedy shines through it, uh, in that scene because yeah. it's like, I think you've got my head. No, I think you have. When well, they're saying, I think you have mine. I think you have mine. And then at first we think they're maybe talking about their hats or something. Uh-huh. But no, they're talking about their heads yeah. and they switch. Yeah, so they, they're trying to trade heads and there's some good robot bowling. Uh, we get some robot impersonation where the a couple of the, the teens dress up as robots to run around and I think try to rescue Agapet. Mm-hmm. But eventually, Lob by himself uh, wanders off down this trough of smoke to get into the inner sanctum to retrieve Agapit from the meliorators or the controllers. And I guess the place he's going into is the the dreaded chamber of blissfulness. Mm-hmm. And this whole sequence in here just rocks. Like the the sets, the costumes, the sound effects. The Chamber of Blissfulness is like the mainframe room in the Nostromo in Alien, you know, where where Dallas mm-hmm. talks to Mother, except the walls have ears and lips, and there are these vertical half-shell sarcophagi over in the corner uh, that look like they've got lining like a nonstick cake pan, and then the yeah. gogglehead meliorators are wandering around being creepy, and th- this whole scene was really good. Yeah, I, this this scene is fabulous, and and oh, those those robot costumes they put on, the, I love that scene as well. Uh, the, the fact that they're wearing those because it kept make me, making me think, like, how did you guys get a costume out of those robots? Uh-huh. Like, did you flay a robot? Yeah, did you scalp a did. robot? They skinned because robots. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise, I didn't get the sense that the the robots are wearing costume or wearing outfits and wigs. Uh-huh. Like that's a part of their body. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, they have that survival training, so I guess it, it works out. A naked disco robot has few secrets. A flayed disco robot has none. Uh, is that Game of Thrones? That, that's some House Bolton wisdom. Okay, yeah, that, that sounds like some Bolton wisdom. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Lob's got a pretty good plan for getting Agapit out of the Chamber of Blissfulness. He goes in there, sits down with him, does some fake laughing to be like, wow, things are great, and I— I laughed out loud at Lob's fake laughing. That was really good. But then his plan is to fake sick. He's like, here, follow my lead. <laughs> They're like, oh, my stomach hurts. <laughs> and, uh, well, he's really he's really digging into that, uh, that teen tool set on this one. Right. Uh, in fact, they say, like, we're going to use the plan that we used to get out of the exam at school one time. Yep. They, they pulled the Ferris Bueller. Yeah. So then uh, Pavel and one of the other teens, I guess maybe it's Vic or somebody, they leave with Agapit, the hairless alien, to destroy the power plant that gives energy to the robots. Uh, so that's their plan to, to like stop this all and save the day. But Lob, the yellow-haired guy, has to go back and help the two girls escape because they, they fell asleep and they've been captured and uh, Varia and the girl with the thick glasses are going to be – they're being taken to the Chamber of bl- Blissfulness. And we're told that like within 30 minutes, they will be obliterated with total happiness. 
And there's there's one scene here where so Varya has been doing that trick where she keeps saying the A and B paradox to the implementer robots and it fries them. But then she tries it on the controller robots and that doesn't work. They are too clever to get hot wired by a paradox. So I was thinking, man, I wish they had they had tried instilling them with Cartesian doubt. That might work. Yeah, when in my version, at any rate, they ask the she asks the robot the A and B uh, riddle, mm-hmm. and then they think for a second, and they're like, the only thing that remains is your word for and. Yeah. Uh, so uh, again, I think we lose something in the translation of this paradox, uh, but uh, but yeah, these these guys, the controllers, are able to figure it out. They can mm-hmm. process it. Yeah, I mean, it might as well be like asking them, you know, what's one divided by zero? It's it's something mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be able to do. But I think the idea is that the controllers can actually interrogate the question itself and say, like, yeah. I don't have to give you an answer for that. Yeah, and and again, the controllers don't. They walk like robots. They don't walk like. Um, like Cirque du Soleil mimes. Yeah, like they don't they're, dance. They're, they're here to control the pleasure, not to administer the pleasure. They've got more Dr. Satan type movements. Yeah. Uh, so I don't remember how exactly this happens, but somehow the the two pioneers in Agapit, while they're out on the planet looking for the power station, uh, they run into some older model robots that are still left behind on the planet, like from before the era of the really bad robots. These are like, I think supposed to be innocent, nice robots, but one of them has this deep threatening voice with swiveling googly eyes, like a chameleon and says, I am a nanny robot. (laughs) Yeah. These robots look a bit clunkier, a little goofier, a little more old fashioned. Uh, Their heads kind of look like dwarf spider bots. Uh, uh, They're, 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 they're they're fine. Yeah, and the nanny robot, and then his friend, the mechanic robot, they help out the 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 teens and Agapit, uh, and then after they help them get into this vehicle that's going to take them to the power plant, they get attacked by the disco bots, and they're told you will be disassembled. And I felt truly sad for nanny bot and mechanical bot. <laughs> I don't know; they seem like sweet bots. Well, you know that. They're, they're simple in their, their design. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so the climax is that uh, Varya and the girl with the thick glasses are in the cake pans in the sarcophagi in the chamber of blissfulness. And they're going to have their minds and personalities obliterated with the total happiness. And it's going to be in a few minutes now. And can their friends stop it? So there are a few things that they try. Lob tries to glue the robot's feet to the floor with his tube of universal glue, which I knew would come back. They said that at the beginning. I guess it's like mm-hmm. Chekhov's glue. And that works for three of the four robots in the room, but one of them is still active and, and attacks Lob and immobilizes him. Yeah, it has like psychic powers and yeah. is like making him float around and all. Uh, but then Agapit and the two boys get to the power plant where they are ambushed by a laser trap, which they defeat with a mirror. And then they go into the reactor core and they try to overload the robots uh, dur- by overcharging them, basically. So they stick with that shard key into the computer to operate it and make it overcharge the robots. But then the computer melts the, the shard key. So they're like, oh, no, we have nothing to operate it with. But then – Guess whose hobby saves the day? Yeah. It is it is Pavel. He pulls like a nine inch long nail out of his suit. It's like, good thing I had this, and they jam it into the keyhole and the bad robots melt down. Yep. Raining cinematic payoff. <laughs> Saved by his nail hobby. Uh so so all the bad robots melt down. The day is saved. Uh the um 
the oh the nanny robot and the mechanic robot come to the rescue they they stop the killer bliss machine and they free the two pioneers and then they say this line that was so shockingly sweet they say we are defective but we are your friends that's what <laughs> friends are yeah uh, and then there's like it just wraps things up really fast a super like uh, fast forward resolution. Like the people on the space station are immediately resettling the planet. You see them streaming out of this giant rocket. Uh, they, they're like, oh, we're going to use robots again, but we'll use them wisely this time for real. And there's a bit where the uh, where, where Agapit is there and his father who has a full head of hair, mm-hmm. uh, puts his hand lovingly on Agapit's uh, bald scalp uh-huh. and tells him that now he is a man and she'll grow his hair out. So just a little <laughs> extra bit of world building to explain why, why, why Agapit is hairless, I guess. Yeah, I didn't get that. I mean, I, maybe there's some kind of environmental effect, but it was very that was that was funny. And then some like mm-hmm. it's just a rapid sequence of funny things here at the end where suddenly the magic bureaucrat shows back up, you know, the king of yep. Soviet actors. Uh, he just appears uh, and he goes up to the kids and he delivers them a message. It's like a, it's like a note that says like, Hey, get back to earth. And yeah. he, and again, never explained why this movie has exactly one character with magic powers who has essentially no involvement in the actual plot. He's just sort of a framing device. Yeah. And with that whole, shouldn't you be getting back to earth note that he hands them? Um, it, it's as if he's there to remind us too, that this film is also is an escapist venture and therefore is maybe a little bit dangerous. So it's kind of like, all right, all right, that was fun, but let's get back to work, kids. Earth is where it's at. Yeah. And this connects, I guess, to the philosophical themes of the movie, uh, because this movie, uh, again, like I thought it was unusually thoughtful for a kid's sci-fi movie and asks Mm -hmm. legitimate philosophical questions that have been explored in, uh, you know, in other works, like uh, it's a big theme of David Foster Wallace's novel, Infinite Jest, where there is this, uh, this thing called the entertainment, which is a film that is lethally entertaining. It is so entertaining that when people watch it, it it totally consumes their their mentality, and all they want to do is just watch the film over and over until they die. Uh, but it's also a theme, you know, going back farther to Brave New World, the idea of a, a hedonic dystopia, a place that is destroyed by an uh, over obsession with the quest for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, a theme explored in The Matrix. You remember there's that whole thing where uh, you know the bad guy, played by Joe Pantoliano, wants to be reinserted back into The Matrix so that he doesn't have to think about the big conflict and the underlying reality and can just live out his life in uh, in shallow fake pleasures. Uh, and this this relates actually to a thought experiment promoted by the American philosopher Robert Nozick called The Experience Machine or The Pleasure Machine, which was in a book published in 1974, around the same time as this movie. It could be a coincidence, hmm. but I wonder if there's anything going on there. The The basic gist of The Experience Machine thought experiment is that it's there to interrogate the premise of any ethical system uh, or system of determining what the good life is that's based on hedonic utilitarianism. You know, just the idea that the right thing to do in any given situation would would be that which delivers the most pleasure and the least pain to the greatest number of people. Uh, now, in a lot of cases, that seems like that's a pretty good way to uh, to calculate what you should and shouldn't do. Like, it's nice to offer somebody a piece of candy and it's not nice to punch them in the face. But Nozick's thought experiment indicates that there could well be limits to a principle that says the good life is simply defined by the maximizing of pleasure. 
because he asks this. He says, well, like, what if you had a choice to get into a machine? I mean, imagine some kind of combination of drugs and virtual reality that would cause you to live a completely blissful existence every waking moment of your life. And you could live, you know, a long, long time. But of course, none of it would be real life. You'd just be lying there hooked up to a machine that's tricking your body into experiencing maximal pleasure all the time. Would that be a good world? Is that a world we would actually want? Would it be better than this one that is full of suffering but is actually real? It would be objectively more pleasurable. But if that's not a good world, that makes us think that our our intuitions are at least telling us that there is something that is ethically valuable, something that makes up the good life other than just maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain uh, that like maybe something about the good life has to do with real relationships with other minds and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, I think, I think some of these ideas are definitely reflected in the film though, though uh, again, on another level, I think a lot of it also kind of captures this idea of youth culture is a danger to our children and our children <laughs> are the future. How do we create a future generation that is not going to be subjected to these these influences, you know? Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I, I imagine it would be interesting to see, like, a deeper read uh, from somebody, you know, about, you know, how this film fits into uh, Russian culture mm-hmm. uh, in the mid-1970s, you know, what sort of values were warring. I mean, I mean to, again, to a certain extent, uh, they're the same cultures that are the same um, – uh, it's the same conflict in any culture. You know, there's mm-hmm. always that concern about uh, how our children are growing up and what are the influences uh, that are going to potentially corrupt them and how do we steer them correctly into the future? Yeah. And I mean, I wonder, I, I don't know. The movie doesn't ever get overtly political, but I wonder if there is some uh, implicit political commentary here in the idea that of like a Perhaps you could view it as an indictment of capitalist economies as this kind of empty pleasure machine, you know, something that is designed to – that in some ways, at least for some people, maximizes hedonic pleasure in the short term at the expense of uh, meaningful relationships and family and duty and things like that. Yeah, it also might have had – like cinema world contemplation because clearly i mean it's a movie made by movie makers mm-hmm. you know it's coming out of the, the 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 russian uh movie industry like i wonder if it's kind of expressing some of their you know internal um uh discussions and conflicts you know like if, if you're making a kids movie mm-hmm. uh should the kids movie be just pure fun just pure drivel mm-hmm. uh, or should it attempt to tell a more complex story? Should it uh, attempt to teach them something? Should it have this kind of uh, philosophical contemplation uh, nestled within it? You know? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's weird. This I feel like this is a great kind of movie to talk about on Weird House Cinema because it is full of stuff that was totally unintentionally funny. Uh, like there, mm-hmm. there is a lot of uh, – uh, weirdness that is obviously not intended by the filmmakers, but nevertheless, I think it's actually overall a pretty solid movie. Like the, I would say that given certain constraints, this is this is a well-made film and actually kind of a thoughtful film, despite being I don't know somewhere between like Tarkovsky's Solaris and a Disney Channel Kids Club movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And those two kind of represent the extremes that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, should it be just pure uh, empty entertainment or should it be just um, you know, glacial uh, thought-provoking art? Uh, 
Yeah, and luckily the king of cinema is around to speed things along for us uh, here, though. So one last thing I want to say before the end here is it is unrelated to this movie, except that I found it uh, when I was looking up this movie on like IMDb, it popped up in the recommended tab, I think, because it's another uh, Soviet science fiction film for children. But there is this movie I came across called Lilac Ball or the Purple Ball from 1987 that is I can't even describe the poster. Just, oh my God. There's like a big purple grape man covered in red hair. He looks like a, a, a Gimli Bigfoot with four arms. And uh, you love the four armed aliens, Joe. Oh, I do. Uh, yeah. They always call out to you. I think we might have to come back and, and see if the lilac ball is any good. Yeah. It, it looks fun. Um, yeah, that this, uh, this was, a, this was a fun one. Uh, for anybody out there who's like, okay, I'm, I'm in. How do I watch this film? Well, you can find it for free on YouTube. Uh, that's the, the way you watched it. And what was it called on YouTube? Was it Teens in the Universe or Children in the Universe? It was called Teens in the Universe. And there are multiple versions. Uh, one that had subtitles in several different languages and another one, I think, that didn't have any subtitles at all. So uh, obviously look for the one that has your a language you can speak if you don't speak Russian. Yeah, and I watched it on Amazon Prime Video. Mm-hmm. Uh, technically, I bought it. I paid 99 cents for it. I don't know who I paid 99 cents to exactly, <laughs> but I, I clearly own this film now. Uh, but it's uh, you'll find it by searching for the teens in the universe, or uh, you, it, it's actually listed as science fiction dilogy, D-I-L-O-G-Y, instead of a trilogy. Hmm. And it's episode one and two. Episode one is Moscow Cassiopeia, and episode two is Teens in Space. I got to say, there is a lot of weird-looking Soviet science fiction. I, I think coming back to Eastern Bloc science fiction could be a, yeah. a really rich vein for us to to mine in the future. Oh, yeah. I know for a fact there's some really good stuff that came out of uh, East Germany mm-hmm. uh, uh, back in the day. Um, there's a, In fact, there's some nice DVD sets of those films, so mm-hmm. that might be a place to look as well. Uh, well, it, this has been fun, but the extraordinary service executive is telling us that it's time to, to close things out and return to Earth. So we're going to do just that. Well, hopefully, he can explain what this was all about. <laughs> uh, yeah, he'll 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 explain it for us here. Put my life um, in some context, man. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of which, though, uh, if anyone out there has experience with this film, you know, if you uh, if, if you uh, are Russian or of Russian descent uh, or, or grew up in an area where this played and was on television, you know, perhaps you have some uh, something to share. You know, was this film a part of your childhood? If that is the case, I would love to hear from you and, and, and hear uh, your take on children in space or teens in space or Moscow, Cassiopeia, for that matter. Totally. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you will find it every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And that feed can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, Rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the things you can do uh, to help us out. Um, We don't have a blog for the show anymore. So what I've been doing is I've been using my personal blog, samutamusic.com. That's S-E-M-U-T-A, music, like in Dune. Uh, And I put out a little blog post for each episode of Weird House Cinema. And each of those episodes uh, includes uh, either a teaser or an actual title for the forthcoming episode in case you're one of those people who wants to to watch the film ahead of time uh, before you listen to the episode. 
Ooh, we went long today. Anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, especially for editing this monster episode. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or a movie for future Weird House Cinema, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 